Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. The Stoic school in ancient times tended to be rather distrustful of sexual desires and pleasures. Not that there weren't legitimate circumstances in which they could be enjoyed, but they were always a little bit dangerous, and we'll see why. Epictetus himself didn't actually have a partner. He, towards the end of his life, adopted a child and had a woman who we might think of as sort of a housekeeper involved with him, but it doesn't appear that, that he himself indulged in any sort of sexual relationships. Now, the Stoics were not actually that unusual in seeing sexuality as something that you wanted to pay attention to. Even the Epicureans, who often were faulted as being rather driven by pleasure and base pleasure at that, if you read their writings, were quite concerned about how things could easily get out of hand. And what we see him talking about this in, in relation to is sexual desire in general, or if we want to call it lust, and then in particular the problem of adultery. He also does talk here and there about those who are perverse, but he doesn't go into any great detail about that. He tells us a bit more about why adultery is such a significant problem. And we can think of adultery and whatever we want to call the perversions for him, and there's discussion about exactly what is meant by that. Generally, sort of you know, effeminate actions on the part of a man. There are a few other things as well. Pretty much a lot of the things that we find on the internet these days, I think you would probably consider perversions. We can think of those as sort of limit points of, of sexual desire or lust. When lust is indulged in, it's already very strong on its own. We'll see just how strong it is in a moment. But when it's indulged in and there aren't any limits placed upon it, no barriers or controls, we could say, then it's likely to lead to what we could call antisocial behavior. And in many respects, not just antisocial, but anti-relationship behavior. So what does he have to say? In the Enchiridion, he says one thing that's very interesting. And I've got this Greek word here, aphrodisia. So that means matters of sexual desire, matters of sexual pleasure. We get the word aphrodisiac from that. And, it, you know, we think of aphrodisiacs as things that are supposed to arouse desire. But for the Greeks, this word aphrodisia meant the whole realm of things that are involved in that. So if you're having sex with somebody, that's aphrodisia. If you're sending them love letters, that's aphrodisia, right? And I suppose, you know, representations. They had various artistic representations of people having sex, particularly on vases, aphrodisia. So in this, the matters of sexual uh, relations and desire, he says, preserve purity as much as possible. Preserve a sense of being clean is another way to translate that. And engage only in lawful pleasures. So this means that what counts as lawful pleasures? Well, you definitely don't want to be involved in adultery because there were laws against that in the ancient world. As indeed there have been until quite recently in many places. And you also don't want to be doing anything else that would go against the social mores. Within the realm of sort of, you might say, socially ratified sexual pleasures, it's, it's not as if anything goes whatsoever, but you've got a lot more freedom there. He also says that if we're engaging in this limited behavior on our own part of keeping our, our desires for sexual pleasures in check, we shouldn't be prudes about it. 
We shouldn't be getting in people's faces and saying, look at you and how you behave. We shouldn't be carrying around signs, lustful people, you know. If, if other people are behaving badly, it's not really up to us to correct them unless they fall under our purview. If they're our child, then maybe we want to say something about it. But if it's somebody else's kid, unless they're actually getting involved with our kid, it's really none of our business. And so he thinks that it's important to preserve a kind of reserve about these matters. You know, to indulge oneself would be bad to be so far to the other extreme as to deplore everybody else's indulgence would be equally bad. And it kind of shows a, an attachment to those sorts of issues. You know, you get the idea that many people who are condemning other people for engaging in sexual behavior probably have some sort of deep abiding interest in that very behavior, otherwise they wouldn't be so focused on it all the time. So he does say those things in the Enchiridion. Sexual desire can be very, very strong. As a matter of fact, he brings this up at a number of points throughout the discourses. It's so strong that people actually use it as an excuse. When other excuses wouldn't fly, they do wrongful things, and then they say, well, I'm in love, or, you know, I couldn't help myself, I was overcome by lust. And he says something really quite funny in Book 4, Chapter 1. He says, how do people act? And he says, you've got to pay attention to yourself, and you need to make sure that if you're going to be a Stoic, you actually live according to those principles. And he says, well might somebody stand over you when you are in an excited condition and say, philosopher, you talk differently in the school. Why are you deceiving us? Why, when you are a worm, do you claim that you are a man? So he's talking in general, like about when oil gets spilled and somebody gets all upset about it. They go to the restaurant and the dish isn't prepared to their liking and suddenly they're no longer the philosopher who's got self-control and can handle things. They get all worked up. Now, what he says that's really funny is this. I would like to stand over one of these philosophers when he's engaged in sexual intercourse so as to see how he exerts himself, what manner of words he utters, whether he remembers his own name or the arguments that he hears or repeats or reads. Epictetus knows that when people are you know, aroused, when they are sexually excited, when lust is like fully engaged, they kind of lose control over their minds, don't they? They say all sorts of crazy stuff. They reveal things about themselves that you'd never have guessed, you know, when we say, wow, I didn't know you were such a freak. That's an example of, of that sort of thing. Even the very act of sex itself is, in a certain way, animalistic. People become just grunting, groaning, rooting kind of things, and they don't seem to be in control. So Epictetus is, he's not saying don't have sex. He's just saying, you know, be aware of what that's like. Probably many of us wouldn't want to see pictures of ourselves or videos of ourselves engaging in this kind of behavior because we'd be like, oh my God, I look like that? Whoa, that's terrible, right? So he's stressing in that point just how strong sexual desire can be. He also talks about sexual desire as something which can make us vulnerable to manipulation or coercion by other people. If we don't have our lusts in check, then they become something, like he says, like a coin that can be exchanged for other things. So you want to corrupt somebody. If they're greedy, you bribe them, right? If they're an adulterous kind of person, if they're a lustful kind of person, you get 
them in bed with somebody and now you've got something over on them and you control them. So if you're the person who can't keep your desires in check, then you can get yourself into all sorts of predicaments and trouble and become what Epictetus would call the slave of somebody else. You're sort of doubly a slave, right? First you're a slave to the lust, to the object of desire, because you're willing to, to throw away things for it. And then you become the slave to the person who actually has the goods on you and can either procure your desire or can show other people how shameful the actions that you've been engaged in are. And it just keeps going and going and going. It's the opposite of freedom. Ironically, people think of it as freedom means being able to have sex whenever you want, with whoever you want. And Epictetus would say, mm, maybe not quite so much. When it talks about adultery, like we said, adultery is kind of a limit point of lust, where lust gets so out of hand that it transgresses social conventions that are, are very important, those that are in some, certain sense rooted in nature. And, and people get into all sorts of debates about you know, evolutionary biology and speculation about whether we're supposed to be monogamous or, or not monogamous, and maybe women are, but men aren't, and all that. Epictetus would say, that's all fine and good, but there's also the social bond. If I have a wife and you're going to seduce my wife, I mean, there's a problem too if she allows herself to be seduced, but you're really transgressing not only against her and me, but also the rest of society. That's the way the ancient world looked at it. It was, it was a very problematic thing. Perhaps you're also transgressing against our families. And likewise, if I decide to cheat, Epictetus thinks that if you're married and you're pursuing things outside of, of the marriage, that makes you a bad person. And you want to attend to that and get that under control. If you're seducing other people's spouses, now you've got a double problem. And so he talks about adultery, and he says that the adulterous person is unjust. They're doing things that are wrong, and they're not to be trusted. Why not? He talks about this in a chapter about an adulterous guy who happens to be a scholar. First, he says that, look, you're ruining yourself in the process. You're destroying the person who is trustworthy. You're destroying the faith or fidelity, the pistis in Greek, within yourself. You're making yourself a worse person by doing that. Second, you're also destroying friendship, philia, and you're destroying society, the polis. Now, are you destroying it? Absolutely. No, but you are wrecking things to some degree. And if you think about how many relationships, not only between the two people who get involved with each other, but all the, the network of other people have been ruined by infidelity, sexual infidelity. You know, it's pretty vast. You don't actually have to be married. He's thinking in terms of married people, but you don't necessarily need to be married in order to have a great friendship ruined by somebody cheating on somebody else. It can wreck all sorts of organization. You've got people sleeping with each other and then breaking up with each other and then sleeping with other people within the workplace. That's one reason why workplace romances are actually frowned upon. You destroy the social bond. You make it more difficult for that society to function. If you have a, you know, a neighborhood in which people are cheating on each other, it doesn't become much of a neighborhood after a while when everybody wants to beat each other up or do mean things to each other, slash each other's tires because they're so angry about that sort of thing. He also considers something that one of the uh, people who was involved with adultery could say. And this is a, a, 
an issue that brings up a greater point. He's referring to this notion that you find in, for example, Plato's Republic, talking about women being common to each other. Plato doesn't actually endorse that. Plato is actually saying both sets of spouses are actually on an equal you know, relationship with each other, and who they're going to sleep with is actually assigned by the rulers. But other people took this, this notion from it. What then, you say, are not women by nature common property? And Epictetus says, sure, let's go with that line of reasoning. And the little pig is the common property of the invited guest, but when portions have been assigned, if it so pleases you, go ahead and approach and snatch up the portion of the guest who reclines at your side. Steal it secretly or slip your hand in and glut your greed. If you can't tear off a piece of the meat, get your fingers greasy and lick them. You'd make a great companion at a feast. Nobody's going to want to sit with you if you act that way. And he says it's the same way with sexual partners. Once we've actually decided this person is in a relationship with this person, then it's hands off. If you want to respect the notion of there being relationships and you want to be a person of fidelity, then you don't insist on, well, anybody can sleep with anybody at any time as some sort of ideal. He goes on and he, and he says, When the lawgiver, like a host at a banquet, is a portion of the parts, are you not willing like the rest to look for your own portion instead of filching away and glutting your greed upon that which is another person's? The other thing to think about, too, that's involved in this sort of mindset that Epictetus doesn't get to, but is really worth thinking about. If we look at other people in their sexual existence, the sexual dimensions of their being, which is really intrinsic to, to human being, right? If we think of them primarily just as sexual beings there for our own satisfaction of desires, we are in a certain sense lowering them. We are not treating them as truly fellow human beings, but just something to satisfy our own desires in. And there's something undignified and in a certain respect inhuman about that, that I think Epictetus himself doesn't quite articulate, but easily could have articulated if he were to think about it a little bit more and if he were to talk about it during that lecture. So this gives you a good idea about Epictetus's views on sexual desire itself, something that you got to really pay attention to and channel into the proper objects and in particular about what happens when things go really off the rails with adultery. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, Keep studying these great philosophical works.